I'm Neil. And I'm Brittany. We are a family on a journey towards financial and location independence. Each week, we interview successful real estate entrepreneurs about their chosen investment strategy and rate it based on how much money it took to get started, how long it took to educate themselves, how passive it is, and whether or not they could do it from anywhere in the world. Welcome to the Road to Family Freedom. Before we begin this week's show, I'd like to make you an offer, a free 30-minute call with me. We've been doing weekly chats with other real estate investors for months now, and the response has been great, but we're going to change things up a bit and focus. We're buying self-storage facilities. We have a great partner in North Carolina with a great track record of success, a background in construction, and we're partnering up to help him expand his portfolio. If you have an interest in learning more about investing in self-storage on the active side, on the passive side, whatever your level of interest, we want to talk to you. There's no pitch here. We're not selling a coaching program. This is just a chance for us to network with other investors interested in self-storage. Also, if you're a current self-storage owner, we'd love to chat with you and perhaps have you as a guest on our show. If all that sounds like something you'd be interested in, Go to roadtofamilyfreedom.com slash self-storage call and schedule a call there. I look forward to speaking with you. Greetings, friends and families. I'm Neil. And I'm Brittany. You're listening to the Road to Family Freedom podcast. Our guest today has an MBA in portfolio management. He's a multifamily syndicator who's been a part of over $150 million in real estate transactions. He's a former professional bike racer, something near and dear to my heart. And he's got a new book out called Next Level Income, How to Make, Keep, and Grow Your Money Using the Holy Grail of Real Estate to Achieve Financial Independence. Chris Larson, welcome to the Road to Family Freedom. Thank you guys so much. Appreciate you having me on today. Yeah. So we're going to talk about multifamily syndication here um, today, but I want to go back to the beginning and talk about um, your first investment property that you bought. Absolutely. Well, uh, again, thanks for having me on today. Just a, I was never formally a professional, but I appreciate it. I got to race with a bunch, Neil. So oh, okay. I'm sorry. I miss, you know, we, I'll take we, the compliment though. Hold that story over drinks and I, my, you know, I elevated you in my head, uh, with the, with the help of some liquor. I'll take, I'll take, I'll take it. I'll take it. Um, but yeah, and that they're, they're actually intertwined because, uh, I raced bicycles from the age of 14 into, uh, until my mid thirties. And for anybody that knows the sport, I know you do a little bit, even, even if you're a professional, you typically don't make much money. And I wanted to have the ability to race my bike, really the freedom to do what I wanted to do. And from a young age, I started to look for investment opportunities uh, while I was in college, I was investing in the stock market in the late nineties and it was, it was very volatile then very much, uh, like it is during, during this recording here in early 2020. And even though I was doing really well day trading, kind of swing trading, um, I ended up losing a lot of money o- over periods of time. And when I thought about it, I thought, okay, in, in 20 or 30 years, if these numbers are multiplied by 10 or a hundred, is this really how I want to live my life? You know, waking up at 3am or, or not sleeping and, you know, just, just nonstop really adrenaline and, um, kind of chasing, you know, chasing the, uh, the market. So after, after, um, a drop in the market in the late nineties, 99 specifically, I started looking at other options for investing. And I read during that period, I read, I don't know, about 250 books over the period of of a few years while I was in not only uh, my engineering degree, but also I do my MBA, as you mentioned in portfolio management. 
my parents invested in real estate, but never really to a big level. So I knew about it, started going to some, some seminars and conferences, ended up buying my first investment property at age 21. I was a junior at the time and it was a townhouse. So it was a three bedroom townhouse. I rented out two of the bedrooms. I lived in the third and I was basically able to live for free. And I bought the place next door. And then I bought another property, another property. And really my plan at that point, Neil, you know, again, being in my early twenties was if I could buy enough properties to have $10,000 after expenses coming in, not including debt service, but you know, assuming they were paid off, that'd be pretty good. So I said, okay, let me put together a plan to do that. And that's what I, that's what I started doing, which ultimately led me uh, into medical device sales as well. So uh, again, that first property was just that little ninety thousand dollar townhouse in Blacksburg, Virginia. While I was at Virginia Tech. Well, you did the classic house hack. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Now they call it a house hack. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. And it was a it was a great way to get started, especially then. Uh, I, I borrowed about three thousand dollars from. Uh, my mom, actually I had the money, I'm sorry, but my mom co-signed on the loan with me. And then ultimately I bought her out of that, uh, out of that. Gotcha. And that was my first. Gotcha. So it took you about three, it took you $3,000 to get into that deal. Less than that. It was, uh, I went, I went back. I don't have the, the records. I think I purged some of the original stuff few, over, over the course of several moves, but it was less than $3,000. It was say $2,500. Wow. Did your, so your parents were investing in more like single family home kind of rentals? Is that what they were doing? Yeah, they were great savers. So my, my father uh, passed away when I was five years old and my mother remarried. My stepfather was a contractor. My mother was a teacher and they had, let me think here, um, two or three rentals that they had. So just, you know, single family rentals and my stepfather would, would do all the work and, and maintain them. And over, over a period of time, they paid those off. So again, for them, for their modest lifestyle was a really nice supplement to their retirement. Um, and now for my stepfather, my mother's um, passed away several years ago as well. But now for my stepfather, it's been a really nice cornerstone for his retirement portfolio as well. That's nice. Um, just out of curiosity, what, um, did he, he stayed in just single family homes? Yeah, he just stayed in single family homes. So, uh, he ended up selling, uh, the primary residence and then he has, um, three rentals. I got to count in my head and make sure I'm, I'm being accurate here. Uh, but he's got, he's got three rentals that are currently paid off that bring him in say about $5,000 a month, which again is, that's enough to cover his expenses in retirement without even tapping into uh, some of his other sources. So it's been for that, for them, it was a good strategy that worked pretty well uh, for yeah. me. I, I like to aspire a little bigger and uh, I, that was just a starting place for me. Uh, any lessons learned uh, from that, uh, from that first deal that you recall any mistakes you made uh any, any, um, any things that really frustrated you about it? Uh, aside from, um, renters and that are in college that, you know, <laughs> that your, or your friends or roommates, um, like, uh, my, uh, my good friend having his, his girlfriend move in at the time who, who thought the house was haunted by poltergeists, um, or living with my sister who was also, uh, <laughs> a tenant of mine. Um, so I, yeah, I got a lot of, I got a lot of stories and frustrations, but you know, it was interesting. It wasn't, I, I didn't, I had, I had some pretty good experiences. Uh, what I will say 
is that you know as I as I built my portfolio, my wife and I were on our vacation, uh, our honeymoon in Costa Rica. This was in 2006, so you know about seven years later, and I had I had companies managing the portfolio. So every property essentially was managed except for the ones uh, that were local to me. And I had to deal with phone calls during my honeymoon. I remember paying like 20 some dollars a minute to, to deal with these issues, with these, these tenant issues. So it, you know, when I, when I looked at that, you know, those, that was kind of the immediate issues. And then over time, what I found, Neil, was that we got, we got about, and I write about this in my book. Um, and we got a, to about 2012, 2013, and I was looking at uh, the rate of return on my investments. And when I started out, I was making about 30%, like 30%, which is great. You know, you put put $10,000 into a property, you're making $3,000 a year, $100,000, you're making $30,000 a year. That's a really nice return. But over time, it had dropped significantly. So I was making single digits, like mid, mid single digits before tax. So my 30% returns were now cut by about 75%. I was making five to 7% returns paying tax on that. At this point in my life, I was, I was doing well from a financial perspective. Um, I was managing a large territory in the medical device industry. Um, my wife was, uh, or is an architect. So she was kind of had built her career up and she was making, you know, a good amount of money. So after tax, I was making like 4%, 3-4%, you know, if you look at the return on equity. And so for me, that was, that was a big frustration when I looked at all the time um, I had put in over the years and I'm sitting there thinking like, is this, is this really kind of the same thing when I looked at the stock market in the nineties, like, is this really the best it, it can be? You know, is there a better way to do this? And that's what really, you know, made me stop and think about, you know, whether that was the best long-term strategy for me. Well, and you, you bring up a good point is that something that people don't think about a lot is that return on equity is yeah. that, you know, you could have a million dollar property in Hawaii um, that someone's paying, you know, uh, $3,000 a month to rent. Uh, and you're, you know, you're making 3.6% on your money or, or less. Yeah. 3.6% on your money. You know, if it's, if it's free and clear, yeah, you know, and you don't have any expenses in that example, right? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's just the, you know, that's just the rent. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, was that basically what was dragging down your return was just the, you, absolutely. Gotcha. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I think there's a couple, there's a couple lessons in there that, you know, for anybody that's listening, that's starting out and is, is trying to figure out what the right strategy is. Um, or, you know, if they, you know, whether, whether they have options or, or they don't. And one, one thing I think that, um, small investors don't always consider is, okay, I'm going to buy this property. I'm going to pay it off. And then I'm going to have that. Well, you know, are you going to be happy with the return at the end of the day? Like, is that, is that, is that strategy scalable? And that's something, you know, if you think about your investing strategy, like a business, it's important to think like, can I scale this business? You know, is it going to take me, you know, uh, the same amount of time for every property that I have? Can I, can I hire people to manage this process? Um, but also are my returns scalable? So if you start off and your, your target return is say 15% and it, it's cut in half, is that, is that okay with you? Um, or how do you access that equity? So I think you know, if you look at, say, going back to a $100,000 home, you put 10% down, you're making $3,000 after expenses a year, that's 30%. Well, if that, if that home goes up $100,000 in value, now that's a 3% return on your equity, right? So I think we, we always, we tend to forget that the return on equity that paid off equity is, is really zero. 
if you're not leveraging it. And you know, over time, a good question to ask yourself is, can you leverage that equity? Um, one of the lessons I learned during the crash 0809 was that the bank turned off that switch so I couldn't access my equity in those lines of credit. And they didn't really turn them back on for several years after that. So that was, again, people might say, well, why don't you just pull that money out? The banks wouldn't let me do that. So that's something that you know people, people have to remember that real estate goes in cycles, the economy goes in cycles, and we may see that again. So that's something to be aware of. The other thing that I, I think small investors sometimes forget is that if you have a property, and you're paying, you know, you're paying the mortgage, you're paying um, for maintenance as you go. I've had investors say to me, oh, I'm making 35% on this property. I said, well, how much, what are you paying a management company? Oh, oh, I manage it myself. Okay, what, what are you putting aside for maintenance every month? Oh, I don't have any maintenance. It's a, you know, well, you will have, <laughs> you will have maintenance. <laughs> you will have vacancy. If you're, pay, if you're not accounting for paying yourself a management fee, then, then you should. So when you're looking at these strategies and you're trying to equalize across the board, you should say, okay, what would I pay if I was running this like a business? What would I pay a manager? What would I set aside every month for maintenance? And when a bank tells you that they're going to give you 75% of your gross rents as, as basically credit for that property, that's a pretty good benchmark because banks are smart. They know that if you're taking in a thousand dollars a month in rent and they say, Oh, we're going to assume you're going to get seven fifty of that rent. There's a reason for that because your typical expenses are more like 30% a month. You know, if you look at uh, what you're taking home. So, um, again, frustrations, lessons learned in that, um, you know, one, remember when your equity grows, can you access it Two, are you really properly accounting for the expenses? Um, and then three, you know, how much, how much time is it going to take you, you know, as you grow that? And are you going to have to be essentially on call 24 seven? Gotcha. Gotcha. So what led you to shift gears from residential into commercial? We made it easy because we just talked about we talked yeah. about all these reasons, Neil. Um, so uh, it, it was all these things. You know, I'm a numbers guy, so I look at the numbers and say, "What is my return? What is my return on equity?" I was not. That's where I started. I was not happy with that. Uh, the frustrations from from dealing with tenants over a period of time and thinking, "Is this really? Do I really want to have you know 10, 20 properties when I'm 40 years old and dealing with this?" I was on call for 12 years of my life as a medical device rep, I'm, I'm not thrilled about the thought of being on call ever again, whether it's in that field or um, in, in real estate. So it was, it was the lack of scalability, the, the decrease in my returns, and then uh, also the, the taxes. So you know, I, I, again, I, I, everything that we're talking about, I, I, I kind of go through in my book, kind of my thought process, why I moved from single family uh, to multifamily. But, um, I really thought I can't, if, if I'm getting a 5% return on, on my capital, is that going to get me to where I want to be um, over a period of time? And then also, it, this is supposed to be passive. So for people that are professionals, um, whether they're high income professionals or whether they're, they're running a business and a small business or anything else, it, you know, do you really want to be spending the same or, or more time on, on your real estate business? The answer might be yes, but I was looking for something that I could scale passively uh, that would give me a better rate of return, return. and also that uh, would give me better tax benefits as well. And multifamily really, really checked the box on all those. Um, so that's what really that's what led me to, to ultimately investigate that market. 
How were you introduced to multifamily? Where'd you kind of find yeah. that information from? Yeah, so it was serendipitous. I think like a lot of things that we look back in life and uh, my wife and I, so my mother passed away at the end of 2011. My uh, two sons now um, were were two and, and just under a year old. And it really led me to, to stop and think, okay, is this, where, where am I in life? I'd quit racing my bike at this point. I was doing well in my career. I was kind of halfway down my my ten year plan to paying off my real estate properties, Brittany. And I thought, like, am I really am I really going the exact direction that I want to be? And is this the right thing? And it was a good period of my life to um, to evaluate that. I was at a business planning meeting with my wife. We were trying to look at how to grow uh, her business as an architect. And I was talking to a gentleman there. This was out in uh, Lake Tahoe, and he said, well, have you ever looked at multifamily? I said, well, yeah, I'm familiar with it. He said, well, you should talk to my friend. So I got back, made some phone calls, looked at the space. And what I really liked about multifamily, it wasn't, it wasn't all the stuff we just talked about. I'm, I'm a trend. I'm a demographics guy. I'm a trend guy. That's why I got into the medical device industry. Um, and what I saw in the, in the multifamily space was the same demographic trends that we saw in the medical device industry, but we were seeing it with the millennials. So millennials were starting to rent and we saw this really um, steep acceleration in demand for apartments. And we just didn't have the supply. Now this was, this was going back eight years now. This is 2012. So going back eight years, I'm looking at this and thinking, all right, this is, this is where I need to be. And then looking at the returns, I talked to a couple of different operators and the returns were, were in line with what I wanted, what I wanted to see at the time. And then what I found out was that you could get all the tax benefits that I used to get when I wasn't a high income professional from multifamily, just the way that multifamily is treated. Um, but then it had some really sweet additions that went in there that have even gotten better since then, like doing cost segregation where you can accelerate depreciation. So you can basically, like I, I could show you guys a K1, you know, you can take $10,000 home from a property and in income, but you could show say a $50,000 loss on that property because you're depreciating all, all the pieces of that property over an accelerated period of time. So what I mean is, you know, if you have a hundred unit apartment complex, well, if you have a stove and a water heater, um, you have fixtures, even the landscaping, it's really, it's really wild. All these things depreciate over a period of time that's much less than the 27.5 years that the IRS says you depreciate uh, the building itself. Um, now, that doesn't include the land. But when you take all that into account, that depreciation typically offsets income for, you know, three, five, six, seven years, which is a really, it's a, it's a really nice advantage if you're paying a 40% marginal tax rate. I have a quote uh, in my book from one of our investors in California and he's, you know, they're paying 40, sometimes 50% marginal tax rates if you're a high income tax, uh, high income professional out there. So not having to pay to the government half of every dollar you take home is, is a really nice benefit. Yeah, we've we've we're invested in uh, a couple of multifamily syndications, and that's exactly what we see. Is you yeah. know, we're getting you know, uh, you know, six thousand dollars a year, you know, uh, in income, uh, but we're it's but the K one shows a loss. So yeah, it's so like magic no, almost, right? No tax on that. So <laughs> yeah. and then on top of that, you know, if our you know if our exit works the way it should, the 
the the capital, the principal will also grow uh, when the when the when they exit the deal. So, absolutely, yeah, it's a really nice benefit, um, and that's why you know I think uh, last year it was a Jared Kushner. They did a I forget it was in the New York Times or where it was written up, but they were talking about how he he didn't he essentially paid no tax. And this is why, because he's taking advantage of, of the tax code. You know, the IRS wants us to invest our money in places that are going to benefit the country as a whole. I think it's important to note that as part of the demographic trends I was talking about, we need about 4 million units this decade alone in this country just to keep up with demand. Um, you know, Charlotte, we're, uh, we're in the process of acquiring a property there. Charlotte alone needs 72,000 units this decade. So wow. that's 7,000 units a year. And, you know, if you look at, you know, your average community might be 200 units. What is that? 35 new communities that have to be built every single year, year in, year out. That's three new communities that have to be delivered every month for 10 years. And I can tell you with uh, the, you know, as we record this, the downturn that we're experiencing, there's not the starts that are going to be expected in in 2020. So those, that long-term trend's not going away. Well, and we also, uh, as we record this, you know, we're right in the middle of the the COVID-19 uh, pandemic and millennials are, are taking a double hit. You know, a lot of them graduated from college during the Great Recession. They're in massive amounts of student loan debt. And then now they were just, a lot of them were just starting to get on their feet and get to the point where they might buy a house. And now this happens. And so, you know, I think a lot of them are going to be it's going to it's going to increase that trend of turning them into renters. Yeah, I don't I don't disagree with that. I, I think I think for, for short term, you know, everything's going to take a hit this year. But if you look at multifamily specifically, uh, if anything, it's going to enhance the demand because supply is is going to be depressed slightly in the near term, in my opinion. Gotcha. Okay. Um. So, are you? you know, multifamily has been a really, really hot asset class over the last, yep. you know, five or six years. Um, how, how have you, have you made any adjustments into how you're investing based on, you know, I, I don't want to get in based on what the, what the market's been doing, you know, in any red flags where you say, yeah, I'm not going to invest. We're not going to, we're not going to, uh, do that investment. Yeah. That's an excellent question, Neil. If you bought anything when I first started in 2012, 2013, investing in this space, if you basically bought anything multifamily, you look like a rock star. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, your returns were, I can tell you, you know, my, my returns are like you were saying, you know, those initial five years that they're phenomenal. They're still very solid returns today. I think the challenge we're going to face is that we do have a lot of investors in this space. So there's certain areas where you've seen cap rates. So the capitalization uh, rate on a property have been compressed in certain markets, um, perhaps lower than, you know, the, the risk in my opinion uh, would justify. So a lot of my current portfolio is, is in the workforce housing space. And so that's, we're talking about rents that are maybe $800 a month. We're talking about C plus B minus asset, really, which you can't build anymore. You, know, you can't build, you can't build units for $75,000, what we acquired most of these properties for. And I think they're going to be, they're going to be solid investments going in there today. If you're paying a hundred, 
thousand dollars per unit for those same assets, you know, there's a little less meat on the bone with respect to that. Uh, about six months ago, I started talking to my investors about how we need to be cautious about a coming downturn. And I think uh, I was on a podcast in uh, in January, and I, I quoted that. I mean, I didn't, I can't say I predicted this downturn, but again, real estate goes in cycles, so we have to expect that you know, at this point in the cycle, there's probably going to be a pullback. And what we started talking about was looking uh, with my operational partners at uh, more B plus A assets. And the reason we started looking there is we wanted to find our resident base that was more insulated from economic downturns. So for instance, my wife and I, we're still working right now. So we can, we have you know, home office, we're doing Zoom calls like we're doing today, uh, which is a phenomenal technology. Uh, but if you are going to work every day and you're paid a wage or you're working on a factory line that's been shut down uh, or you're going and you're waiting tables like here in Asheville, North Carolina, um, hotels, restaurants have been shut down. Maybe they're doing some takeout, but not a, if you're a server, you don't, you, you, you're just sitting there on the sidelines, unfortunately. Um, so we were looking for kind of a lower risk resident base. Now, that being said, you get a little bit lower return typically if you have an asset that's more stabilized. So if you're not putting in five or $10,000 a door into these value add properties, there's, there's less risk because you don't have to invest all that capital, but there's not the return on the backside of investing in that space. So for, for me personally, I'm putting my currently, the current investments that I'm making are more in that B plus, A minus asset class, which are a nice complement to my current portfolio. Um, I'm, I'm expecting returns to be lower than they were in the value add space. Uh, and that's really what I think is important for people to look at. I mean, you know, you may don't expect to get a 30% return on your investment today. Um, but if I said to you, Hey, I can give you a 10% return on this multifamily deal. Would, would, would that be interesting compared to the 35% drop we just saw in the stock market in the past uh, couple months here? Um, so these assets are stable. Um, the returns might be a little less. Also, you know, typically the cash flow is a higher percentage of that overall. So that's a nice, you know, that's nice to stabilize that. Um, but then, you know, kind of a corollary uh, to the question you asked, Neil, is I'm also looking at other asset classes that, you know, may start to overtake multifamily in the future. So I'm always looking at, you know, different things. Um, we do have some other offerings with next level income that are outside of the multifamily space. Uh, I think self-storage is interesting. I think oil and gas is interesting. Um, commercial office can be interesting in some different areas. I think senior housing as we, as uh, baby boomers start to uh, need more assistance they, as they ultimately age and uh, get into their 75, 80 year old, um, uh, I'm sorry, they turn 75, 80 years old. You know, that's going to be, that's going to be a space that's going to be interesting as well. But I, I don't think that the, the trends that we've seen from a demographic perspective, I don't think they're going away anytime soon. I think it's, I think multifamily for me personally, it's the cornerstone of my portfolio. It's going to, it's going to stay that for quite a while. Gotcha. Um, so what are you, what are some of the ways that you go about vetting the operators that you invest with? So for an investor, I think there's a few things that you need to look at. So specifically with, with any real estate syndication, there's, there's market risk. So if you buy a commercial property income producing a piece of property, 
you can't pick it up and move it like they did in the Simpsons episode where they moved Springfield one episode like that. That just doesn't happen in real life. Right. So fundamentally, fundamentally make sure you're comfortable with the market you're buying in before you even start to look at an investment. Number two, look at the operator you're dealing with. One, do they have a track record? Two, do they have a robust team that's, you know, uh, going to be able to understand what's going on one in that specific market um, and two with that strategy. So if you're looking at a value add strategy, you want to have a team that's made up of somebody that one can, can acquire those assets. And then two, if it's either that person or, or somebody else on the team that is going to be able to execute. So executing on a value add strategy is very different than executing on uh, oil and gas property, right? So you're gonna you're gonna want somebody on the team that's a specialist in that. Personally, I like to see somebody with uh, construction background that can go in, that can understand, you know, okay, what what are we seeing here? Can we can we source these um, utilities, uh, like uh, washer dryers, um, countertops, flooring? Can we source these at a better price? And then. Can I work with the team? Because if you're thinking about a value add strategy, let's say it's a three year timeline, you want to renovate 200 units. Well, that's that's pretty quick that you're going to have to turn those. And as I learned in business class, the big problem when you deal with construction is this. Yeah. <laughs> and for anybody that's not watching, the problem yeah. with construction is people standing around with their hands on the wall waiting for the other trades to get out of the way. So we're in the process of building a new house right now. You want a project manager that's going to be able to stack those trades and turn those units as you know as quickly as possible on a, on a timeline. Because the difference between turning a unit in one month versus two months is tremendous if you look at the time period um, when, when you deal with that. And then uh, three, you know, is that operator understanding how to underwrite a property? So right now that's really important. If you have an operator that has not is undercapitalized or maybe they have the wrong debt or financing on that property, they may be in a lot of pain right now and they may not be able to operate that property uh, profitably. And then, you know, are there fees in line with what you're seeing with other operators? So I think it's important for an investor to um, be comfortable with the market be comfortable with the operators, look at other operators there. Uh, And then once you're comfortable with those first two, then go ahead and look at the investment itself. Okay. Um, Sorry. Uh, No worries. I don't know what that is. (laughs) Okay. All right. So uh, you're an advocate for infinite banking. Uh, I've heard you talk about it. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. For our listeners, listeners, my wife, uh, who have never (laughs) heard of that strategy, can you give us a brief overview of what it is and how you utilize it? Absolutely. So um, I wrote wrote an ebook two years ago, uh, Next Level Income, and I just published it here. So anybody that's listening that wants to get a free copy, they can go to our website, nextlevelincome.com slash book. We'll send you a free copy. And one of the things I did in, as I updated it for print here is I added a chapter and it's on infinite banking. About 10 years ago, I started looking into this, this area. My, my first son was born and when my father died, he died in a plane crash when I was five years old and he had, he accidentally had two life insurance policies. Now we didn't have a ton of money, but it was enough to, to keep us going. And it was, it was a godsend it really was. So I knew I wanted to make sure that my family was taken care of if, if anything happened to me. And I had, I had life insurance, I had term insurance. 
But what infinite banking is, it's based upon, uh, and this is a dirty word to some people, but whole life, cash value, whole life insurance. I started looking into it. And another thing I talk about in my book, and it was our, uh, the uh, topic of our second podcast with Richard Wilson, uh, who manages um, its uh, family office club is what it's called. He works with centimillionaires, families that are worth $100 million or more. I want to invest like the ultra rich. That's who I want to invest like. I don't want to invest like, like poor people who, who save, they put money in the bank or underneath their mattress. What I found was the rich tend to one, protect themselves with insurance, but two, they also create wealth within their insurance policies. And this was very interesting to me. So what infinite banking is, um, and Brittany, I, I can speak directly to you since Neil <laughs> opened the window. So if it's a, it's a properly structured whole life insurance policy that is not only funded max funded, but it's actually overfunded. So if you set it up properly, it's overfunded. Uh, what that does, it does a couple things. One, it drives the fees down. It also allows you to grow cash value very rapidly. So we started these policies in 2009, October, 2009. So it's been over 10 years now as of this recording. And some things that we've used the cash value in these policies for is buying cars. So instead of financing the cars, we can uh, use the money, the cash value in our policies to essentially finance the cars and pay ourselves the interest. My wife and I built spec homes. So we would pull money out. We would build a spec home. Uh, we were making, you know, 50 to hundred percent returns. This was, you know, almost 10 years ago now, um, coming out of the, out of the recession, actually say, say 2013, 2014 going forward, um, a little less than 10 years ago. Um, and then we were able to put the money back in. But the neat thing is, again, if you structure it properly, the money inside the policy continues to grow. And historically, and these companies go back to the 1800s. So you can look, I mean, this is as far back in this country as real estate um, records that we have. But historically, they get about a 5% rate of return within the policy. So what's cool is you can get that 5% rate of return and use the money in two different places at one time. So for anybody that's investing in real estate, it's a really great place to be able to go to access your own cash. Then the other thing is it's, it's a great place to store your wealth. So as you make money, I call it my opportunity fund in my book. So what are you doing with your cash in between deals? It's probably sitting in the bank. Maybe you put it in a line of credit in your house. We already talked about how that's not necessarily the safest place, depending um, on different things. But it's for me, I pull money out. I use it. I put it to work. I get a, I get a rate of return. I put that money back in with the profits. That money inside the policy continues to grow. I do it all over again. So going, going into uh, March this year with uh, the coronavirus and economy shutting down, I called my insurance company. I said, hey, I'd like to take some cash out of my policies and put it in my bank account. Five days later, I had six figures in my bank account as a nice cushion. I didn't know if we'd make any money in Q2 of this year. I told my wife, I said, listen, we're fine. We're going to be able to ride this out. We're going to pay all our bills. We're building a house. I said, we're going to be able to continue to pay the bank and do that. So it was a really nice cushion to have that. Um, some people that are listening say, well, whole life isn't that expensive. And it's, it's definitely not for everybody. You know, there's, there's startup costs. Um, you know, you could, you could just put your money in a savings account and get a, you know, get a single digit rate of return there. Uh, but for me having the ability to have that money grow in two places at once, um, 
to protect my family and then ultimately have something that I can leave as a legacy for my family uh, was, it was a no brainer. And then for anybody that's a, like say a commission sales rep or your income is, it fluctuates. It's really nice when you have more income coming in than you, you need, you can put in your policy, it can grow in your policy. And if you need it for an unexpected expense, you, you can pull it out. So um, again, if, if people want to learn more, we actually just, uh, recorded a webinar. It should be up by the time uh, this, this episode goes out. And we updated a page called a bank, our banking page on our website. And you can take a look at the webinar there. Uh, if people want to learn more, I'm happy to put them in contact uh, with the team that, that I use as well. All right. We'll put it in the show notes. Awesome. Thank you. So. I have one quick question. Sorry, yeah, absolutely. Clarify for me. So something like if you yeah. buy a car, you're using yep. that for cash. And then are you using that as if you give your, gave yourself a loan and then paying it back plus like what you would like if it, as if it was a loan with interest and stuff. Is that what you were saying? That's exactly right. Yeah. So it's, it's not, there's no free lunch, right? You can't like take the money, use it and never pay, never pay it back. Well, actually you can do that. Uh, what's neat is let's say you have a million dollar policy and you borrow $50,000 to buy a new car and you never pay it back. When, if, if you died at that time, the insurance company takes the $50,000 first. And what's, what's interesting is the insurance companies, they have to lend this money out to get a rate of return. That's how they get the rate of return. Well, there's no safer loan than loaning it to the policy owner themselves, because if something does happen, it's collateralized um, by that. So the, the best way to structure it is to like, let's say again, same same example. You say, Hey, I want $50,000 to buy a car. And let's say that, that, uh, the loan payment on that car is $500 a month. I know that's not tech. That's not accurate, but so you borrow 50,000 instead of paying the bank $500 a month, set up the same, you know, whatever 60 month, um, payment plan and pay that same amount. So it'd probably be like more like what a thousand dollars a month. Right. So, but set up that same payment plan where you're paying yourself, thousand dollars a month. And then at the end of that period where you'd pay your car off, you now have, instead of 50,000, you have 60,000 in your account. Plus remember you're getting the growth internally in that as well. So it's going to be even more than that. And then you can, you can do it all over again. That's cool. And it's a little yeah. bit safer because you don't, you're not like if you for some reason can't pay for a month or so you're, you don't have a that's bank right. that's trying to collect on you. It's just yourself. <laughs> that's right. I, I would, I would call it the safest place that I can put my money because one, there's no FDIC insurance to worry about. So if you want, if you want more than $250,000 in your policy value and want it, want it to be secure, it's going to be secure. It's your money. You can pull it out at any time. Um, life insurance companies, they're, they're loaning on these multifamily properties that we've been talking about. Um, these companies have been around for, you know, 150 years in some cases. They're, they're just very, very stable companies, um, more stable than the banks. Like you're not seeing, you're not seeing the life insurance companies call the government up and ask for bailouts like the banks do. So think about that. Um, they're also not loaning it 10 times their, their capital like banks do. So it's a very, yeah, it's a very safe place. Um, if you do take a loan out, then you have hundred percent flexibility. It's, it's up to you if, and when you pay it back, um, which is, which is really nice. So again, for, for real estate investors, for business owners, I think it's a, it's a great option to have. Um, we're running short on time. So I think we should do like a lightning round okay. kind of for yep. our next question. Sure. just to get them out of the way. You can start. Okay. So when you got started 
when you decided you wanted to go into multifamily investing, yeah. how did you go about getting yourself educated? And what was the, what was the really key piece of knowledge that you needed to learn in order to be successful? Yeah, so I'm, I'm a data guy, Neil, you know, we've talked about kind of demographics data. So I spent, I spent about a year researching the space, looking at, you know, the demographics behind multifamily, looking at how do you value a multifamily deal? Um, and then also talking to operators. So interviewing them saying, Hey, how do you, how do you find your deals? You know, what's your performance like? What are you going to do in this deal? And then I looked at, actually looked at a few different syndications during that year. I underwrote them myself, like I was going to invest in those deals. And then after about a year, um, I made my initial investment in two different operators. So I could compare how they actually communicated and, and operated with investors afterward. And then um, after that, uh, I, I continue to invest in a passive perspective for about three years. And then my uh, now former partner and I, we formed our partnership in 2015 and did our first syndication in 2016. That's great. Great. Um, so what does a, a day in the life now of a, of a full-time syndicator look like? Good question. So full disclosure, I still operate, uh, still manage a medical device sales team and I focus on investor relations, underwriting deals. Um, I step foot on every property that we, we look to acquire. So I have a great team I work with that are operating. So for me personally, you know, I was talking about being on call. I'm not the guy that's, that's the boots on the ground every day dealing with operations. Um, I certainly could. Uh, I still really enjoy what I'm doing in the medical device space. So I spend the majority of my time doing that. Um, I probably devote about 10 hours a week uh, with respect to you know, our current operations, you know, for doing a raise and that sort of thing. I spend a lot of my personal free time, you know, mornings, evenings, weekends, reading about it. I mean, I watched two webinars. This is a Saturday we're recording this. I watched two webinars this morning uh, on the CARES Act and how it affects multifamily. Um, I've been, I've always, I've been a life, lifelong learner. So it's always been something um, I do. Uh, but again, it's, it's, it's still a very passive investment when it comes to, um, you know, a lot of the current properties that I have with respect to that. Gotcha. And you are investing all over the country or do you pick specific, um, well, obviously we've talked about the market is important, but where are your markets, I guess? Yeah. Great question. So yeah, I'm agnostic. So, you, you know, you say, Hey, this area of the country is a, is a great area. Um, I'm going to go through and look at that. So where I personally like to invest, and again, I'm, I'm fully transparent with my investors, with people that ask me, I'll tell you where I invest, where I put my money and why I moved to Asheville, North Carolina. I moved to the Carolinas because of the demographic shift that I, I saw coming. And this was, I made this decision back in, uh, 2005, 2006, my wife and I started to look at different areas to, to live in. And we moved here in early 2008, uh, March of 2008, to be precise. And I moved here because I thought this, you know, I wanted to be kind of part of the rising tide. And you guys live in a similar area of the country that has a nice rising tide. Um, so I like the Southeast personally. I think other markets around the country uh, that look good, um, Colorado, has an influx of residents. Texas has an influx of residents. Um, some select states kind of in the Pacific Northwest do, but I like, I like the Carolinas. I like Georgia. I like parts of Florida. I like Texas. I like uh, Arizona. 
um, personally with, res- when it, with respect when it comes to multifamily. And I just wrote a, a post that talks about the four trends driving multifamily. And uh, some of those trends are immigration. So you want, you want areas that have people that are immigrating. And why are they going to immigrate there? Because there's jobs, right? You want millennials that are moving there. You want uh, baby boomers that are retiring to those areas. And then the other thing, and this goes back to the jobs, uh, another trend is there's, there's high income individuals that are renting in greater numbers than ever before. So again, it all goes back, back to jobs, quality of life, cost of living. Uh, we look at over two dozen different metrics uh, before we invest in an area. So all those areas that I told you, um, check, check all those, you know, a couple dozen boxes. Awesome. Could you, if you decided, you know, Hey, we don't, we don't want to be in Asheville anymore. We're going to move to um, Thailand. Do you think you could do this from remotely from Thailand for a period? Yeah, I think you could. I think uh, uh, really you could do it from anywhere in the world if you have good operating partners. And that's, I think that's what's, you know, and that's, that's a great question. So if you have an investor that's listening and saying, Hey, what, you know, what do I want to do? What do I want my life to look like? We have two young boys, they're eight and 10. We're staying in Nashville. We're building what I would call our dream home here that my wife designed. Uh, We plan to stay here for the next 10 years. So I don't, I don't foresee that, but I think a great, you know, probably more relevant is, Hey, could we go somewhere for three months or six months or or, or a year and live there and and still have this go on? Um, I probably would take a backseat when it comes to, you know, the, the actual process when it comes to syndicating, um, just because I probably wouldn't be comfortable talking to an investor about a property that I didn't underwrite and, and walk myself. But I, I didn't get to walk our latest acquisition. I, I toured it right before this whole thing started, but you can go and now you can virtually tour properties or you can have somebody do it. So um, I'm, I'm very hopeful that uh, you, a lot of that technology can allow those things to happen. So yeah, I think I could, I could live almost anywhere in the world and um, at least be, at least be a passive investor. That's cool. Gotcha. Okay. Let's, uh, let's transition into yep. talking about the COVID-19 uh, pandemic and how it's affecting uh, all of our, our lives and the way we're investing in our businesses. Um, so have you shifted your strategy at all um, in regards to how the, the current crisis is affecting your business? Yes. So specifically from a, a real estate perspective, you know, we're fortunate that uh, our current acquisition is an A-class property. It was uh, built, it was, it was brought online in 2014. I think it was actually built in 2013, but brought online officially in 2014. So um, very stable resident base. If we look at the uh, at-risk resident population, so those would be industries that we consider to be heavily affected by this. Uh, we're looking at less than 5%, like about a 4%. Um, at risk resident base. So let's say we were looking at a, a B class value add acquisition right now. I, I don't think we'd be going forward with it um, for that. The other thing that we're looking at per property is we're looking at uh, utilizing the PPP program um, for each individual property. Um, we're carefully monitoring collections on a weekly basis. So, you know, we pay. Uh, or we we look at the financials monthly, obviously, on every one of our properties, but we're monitoring collections weekly now. So we're having you know really uh, microscopic look down into um, each resident and their ability to pay. Um, we're looking, you know, f- personally, we have a property in downtown Asheville with uh, retail and service tenants there, and they've been shut down by the health department. So I'm working one with my bank 
to uh, facilitate um, you know, some uh, forbearance with respect to the payments. So I can pass that on to my tenants downtown and help them out because uh, I can't evict them right now, but I also don't want to evict them because we have a great long-term relationship and then who am I going to replace them with? It just wouldn't, it would not make sense. So we're really, we're taking some defensive measures with respect to, you know, our current operations, but also from an offensive side, um, I'm really, I've really pulled a lot of liquidity from some different options. I talked about uh, the life insurance policy earlier, uh, Brittany, um, for people that are uh, listening, you know, there's there's also some other areas you can pull money out of IRAs right now, 401ks. Um, there's loans that can be had for your businesses. But from an investor perspective, um, I'm really, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been heavily in cash over the past year anyway. But um, I'm I'm ready. I'm ready to begin to deploy that uh, when the opportunities present themselves, if they do. Um. Do you have any more questions about the real estate side? Because I have a question go for, that goes. Uh, I do. Let me let me ask. You one go more. there, yeah. and then we'll go into <laughs> off into a different direction. Yeah. I'm game. Uh, so the impact that you're seeing right now, uh, have you started to see? Yeah. Uh, obviously, you know that tenants are losing their jobs. I mean, it's just it's got to be happening. Mm-hmm. You know, you're you've got a workforce housing where they're they're largely in the service industry, and it's just it's got to be shut down. Are you st- are you, have you started to see tenants who are saying, yep, we're not paying right now. We can't, we can't do it. Yeah, definitely in the workforce housing side. Yeah. And I think that's going to be disproportionately impacted. So in those properties, uh, quarterly distributions in some cases have been suspended temporarily. And that doesn't mean that investors aren't going to get paid. It may mean that they get paid in Q at the end of Q2, for instance. So, you know, those properties are still making money and, you know, all our properties are typically, they're able to run at, uh, say, 80% vacancy rate. I'm sorry, 80% occupancy rate. So, you know, 20% vacancy. Um, the one we're looking at now, it's it's mid-50s. It's 55% occupied is the break-even. So, we can maintain those properties. The question is, um, you know, do you have the proper reserves in place? And, you know, again, do you want to be defensive, um, potentially to a fault, so that you're ready in case there's, there's just something that uh, we don't anticipate that that does happen. Um, so yeah, we're definitely seeing some of that, Neil. Uh, it is, it's not as bad as, uh, I thought initially here. So we're seeing, I think, and that, that goes to back, you know, people, people want to maintain where they're living if they like it. So if you have good residents, if you're providing good service, if you have a nice, clean, safe, you know, welcoming place to live, they probably want to stay there. Um, but yeah. And, that's the other thing. Like, just like I was saying with my tenants downtown, you know, we want to work with our resident base to make sure that they, they can continue to stay there um, after they come out of the backside of this. Gotcha. Um, so I want you to put on your, your, your crystal ball. I want you to open up your crystal <laughs> ball and tell us what you think is going to happen. And, and we won't hold you to this prediction. Uh, but what do you predict over the next 12 months with multifamily? 
Yeah, I'm always careful with predictions. So, but uh, I'm I'm happy to share my thoughts. Uh, but hopefully, nobody nobody bets their life savings on anything that I say here. So, yeah, don't do that. This is not this is not advice. Contact your personal advisors. Right? Yeah, exactly. So, I think we're we're absolutely going to see a short term impact that we've been talking about. Uh, Q2, Q3. I think 2020 is going to be a tough year for a lot of people in general. I think we have yet to see you know, the, the peak of the, uh, the coronavirus in this country, COVID-19. Although this morning, uh, Dr. Fauci said that he revised his numbers down to 60,000 um, expected deaths from 120,000. And before that, it was 200,000. Worst case scenario was, I said 1.5 million, but people were saying 2 million. So we're, we're already seeing the peak of that curve that coming curve. down, which I think is, is very, um, there's a lot of hope um, when I when I hear those things, I don't think there's going to be screaming deals to be had all over the place like there were, you know, coming out of 2008, 2009. Um, but I do think that if you are liquid and you have money, that there are going to be operators that were not ready for this and they're going to have to get out. And there are going to be some good deals um, to be had in the latter half of 2020, um, maybe even going into 2021 as, as you know, we kind of uh, get the back end of this, or maybe if there's a little uh, resurgence here um, going into the next flu season. That makes sense. All you. Well, I'm just curious because you said you are in medical equipment sales. Is that right? Yeah, spine, yeah specifically spinal implants. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, not exactly what's, what kind of medical equipment is, you know, being affected here, but I just, I just was curious if you were seeing any impact in what you're doing or had any thoughts on, you know, the lack of some of the medical supplies that um, would be really helpful right now. I mean, I work in a medical office and we, we don't deal with COVID. So um, it's a homeopathic clinic and it's very small, but I still am like rationing gloves and, you know, we've Mm -hmm. had to purchase cloth masks so we can't, we Mm -hmm. can't get Mm -hmm. them. And, you know, we'd rather have someone who's actually actively dealing with um, treating people with virus to have those. But anyway, it's just a, That's a great question. So uh, what we've seen on the elective surgery side is that essentially elective cases have been have been ceased across the board. Uh, Now, the government is doing some things. They're saying if you have a surgery center, you can you can apply for that surgery center to treat these patients, which is which is great. Um, I do want to say something. I think that it's important that people look at these crises and they realize something. And I think something that's important that that you, you, you know, whether you look at um, Hurricane Katrina or you look at this or you, whatever it is, the government cannot take care of you always. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think a lot of people that are real estate investors get that. That's why they prepare themselves and do these things. But be intelligent, prepare for the unexpected. Like I, my, my family and I took some precautions. My wife's like, why are we buying all this stuff? And I said, just, just have enough for a month, like enough food, you know, enough supplies. Mm-hmm. And we didn't, you know, you don't, you don't need to hoard toilet paper. Don't get me wrong, <laughs> but have some clean water, um, have some things to protect your family, whether it's financially or, um, or otherwise. Right. Um, you know, have, have enough food, you know, have some extra cash in the bank. Maybe like, like I said, you know, pull some liquidity and do that. Um, even, even personal protective equipment. So, I mean, we, yeah, we don't have enough to handle this crisis, but you know, if, if people have enough to protect themselves, that's, you know, that's obviously important. Um, 
so again, I think, yeah, we're the medical, the medical industry is being devastated right now in, in a lot of different ways. Um, and it's just, it, it isn't, it isn't necessarily possible. Um, testing for instance, the tests we have aren't accurate. Um, you can't, you can't develop a test for something you don't know is coming. If we knew this was, this pandemic was coming, you know, we, we wouldn't just produce a bunch of more tests. We would have, we would have locked down a lot of different areas ahead of time. So I think people get, get confused and they chase a rabbit down a, down a path. Um, so again, I think, uh, you know, I think we're going to come out of this, um, uh, on, you know, on all fronts and I hope we can learn from it. Um, and I hope that next time something like this happens, it's, it's a little less of a shock to the system. Yeah. Thank you for your perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Chris, thank you so much for sharing with us today. You've got the book, which is available on Amazon, but it's also available on your website. Uh, we'll put that in the show notes. Uh, if any of our guests want Absolutely. to find you, what's the best way that they could reach out? Yeah. Same, same as I mentioned for the book, Neil, thank you. Uh, nextlevelincome.com. You can see resources for everything we discussed today. Uh, again, just uh, go on there. You can get a free copy of our book. You can check out our banking website. You can see and learn more about that. Uh, if people are invest are interested in investing, um, you can apply to become part of the next level income club, uh, by clicking invest and checking that out. Uh, but for anybody that has heard something on here, they find interesting. If they want to reach out to me with any questions, I'm happy to uh, set up a time to talk or just respond via email. And I thank you guys for what you're doing. I think it's phenomenal. Um, I'm very grateful that we got to meet out in Colorado, Neil. Um, grateful for our chance as well, Brittany, to to meet. And you know, I wish everybody listening the best. Ho hope you stay healthy and happy during this time. Thank you so much. Great. Thanks, Chris. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much. Okay, that was Chris Larson from Next Level Income. Uh, if you uh, want to check him out, go to nextlevelincome.com. Um, you can also find him on Instagram at Christopher A. Larson and the Next Level Income Show, I, I believe. We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. But uh, for you, what was, uh, what was the key lesson learned? Uh, I think for me, one that we really haven't talked about before was just sort of like demographics. He really hammered home on that that was a really important piece to where he um, physically where he invests like location wise, but also what type of investments he does. I mean, he really kind of looked at demographics, but also, and then also like numbers, kind of the numbers game has really made a huge difference for him and, and, and his decisions. And I thought it was really interesting to kind of hear that because I think a lot, of, I mean, I'm sure that's part of a lot of the process for real estate investors or at least a little bit, but he really took it to kind of a next level. <laughs> yep. Well, and it really hammers home the point that demographics drive almost everything. I mean, it's, uh, you know, you look at the way baby boomers are driving, have driven the economy all these years. You've got millennials are starting to, to really drive the economy. Um, and, and that's really why it's so important to really look at, you know, when you're looking to invest, mm -hmm. you know, what is it? about that asset class that's being driven by the economics of, of what's going on in the world. Yeah. Yeah. We, we have a stowaway. So yes. if you're watching the video, we got one, but you have to be very quiet. Okay, buddy. No talking. Got it. Okay. Mommy right. and dad are going to finish. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll let you say something at the end of the show. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, um, so knowledge base, he read a lot of books. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and did, you know, he, he's an avid learner. He's someone that really embodies that always learning sort of mentality. He said that he watched a couple of webinars already, um, this morning before the interview. And, um, and so I think that it seems like that's kind of where, and, and self-study, he really didn't, um, he talked to operators. He did talk to people, but it doesn't sound like he took on uh, a mentor of sorts. Yeah. Uh, well, he, he basically invested passively in a couple of different operators and learned sort of how they did things and, and the different way they communicated. And, uh, and then he also learned to, and then he also learned to underwrite the deals himself as if he was, you know, if he was going to be the, the sponsor himself. Yeah. So, and I think that's really key. Um, you know, you, you can you you can invest passively in these asset classes, but you really do want to understand them to a point. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can get a smart operator is going to educate you on on how the asset class works and things like that. Um, but you need to take the time to do it. Um, yeah, yeah. So that makes sense. Yep. Um, so how much time does he does he spend on? Uh, his real estate endeavors? Uh, he said normally about 10 hours a week, um, uh, except maybe when he's doing a capital raise where, you know, where they have a, a new asset class and they're trying yeah. to, uh, that's, I know that's a lot more work than <laughs> just 10 yeah. hours. So. Yeah. But it sounds like, I mean, if you were doing this more in a passive sense and you were just investing in a deal, you're really probably not doing a whole lot except for doing some due diligence yourself. Correct. Yeah. Um, there's some To due- be a passive investor on it. Yeah, no, as a passive investor, you're really, you, you would be wise to do some due diligence uh, in the mm-hmm. beginning. But once you've done that, it's really just, uh, you know, you're, you're looking at the communication, you know, you're getting communications from mm-hmm. the sponsor, which, you know, most of them smart ones will be giving you, you know, monthly and quarterly, you would like to read those and things like that. But beyond that, that's, you know, that's all you got to do. Mm-hmm. So. Smart investor. Yep. Um, and could he do this strategy from anywhere in the world? Uh, he said, yeah, I mean, it would take some adjustment. Um, and you know, and he's pretty happy where he is. Um, but yeah, you know, we talked yeah. about, and we talk about that as well. Is, but he could have gone on a, you know, he could go on a honeymoon or a, yeah, you know, a second yeah. honeymoon without having to be on call. Yeah, um, yeah. he said that he would have to restructure some things and he probably wouldn't be in the same exact role within his partnership, um, which makes sense. Um, but you know, uh, again, as a passive investment opportunity, you don't, yeah, <laughs> you yeah. don't have to worry about it at all, but yeah, um, this is, you know, 10 hours a week, um, 10 hours a week. <laughs> yep. Well, this is and a family podcast. Yes, it is we're a family podcast. Yeah, also, yeah. we're stuck inside the house and no one can go anywhere <laughs> yeah. or have babysitters. Yes. So uh, we actually skipped over money. Oh, my bad. Uh, I it's just all good. It's all good. We're a little distracted. Rolled right now. on by. No, I just didn't. Yeah. It. I just didn't see it. Yeah. And uh, so when he got started, uh, he got started buying a townhome. Uh, for himself that he house hacked two and a half K two and a half thousand dollars. Yeah. So you can really, um, if you're going to live in a property, uh, you know, there are a lot of options for getting in uh, with a little bit lower money down than a traditional uh, investment property. Uh, But when it comes to multifamily syndication, like he's doing, you really, the money, um, 
you're really, you're using other people's money for the most part. I mean, yeah. most smart syndicators are going to invest with some of their own money, um, but it doesn't require you to have a great deal of, um, a great deal of capital. You just have to know how to, to underwrite the deals, find the deals and, and basically bring in passive investors. Yeah. When you have someone who's, who's doing this, do they, are they typically a, do they typically invest in their own deals? I don't. Yes. I mean, it's uh, most of the time. Yes. But there occasionally can be, you know, if you're, if you're doing, if you have a high deal flow, um, you know, there Mm -hmm. may may be a time where, you know, you, you don't have, you know, you're turning uh, deals so fast, you don't have the capital to, to invest in one of those deals. But in general, yes, a smart, I would typically only invest with uh, an investor who's investing in their own deal. Got it. Yeah. Got it. So. All right. All right. Well, once again, that was Chris Larson and uh, we thank him for his time. And uh, do you want to say something, Holden? Let's hit the road. Bye. Bye. I want to read a book. And if you like this podcast, we would really appreciate it if you take just a few minutes and leave a review for us on iTunes. It's really simple to do. Just go to roadtofamilyfreedom.com slash review for links and instructions. Thanks for listening. We're doing this all again next week. Until then, safe travels.